Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. And now, join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Who is Paul referring to in Romans 7? That is the question that we are tackling on this episode of Word Matters. I am Brandon Smith, brand manager for the HCSB, here with my co-host as always, Trevin Wax, managing editor of The Gospel Project. And we have a very special guest today, a man who, as my thesis supervisor for the last year, has tormented me greatly, the uh, Dr. Michael Bird, lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, uh, author of just tons of great books, including Evangelical Theology and uh, recently the Romans Commentary in the Story of God Commentary series. So, Mike, thanks for jumping on with us today. Yeah, g'day, fellas. Thank you for having me on the show. I, I will say I really appreciated the Story of God commentary that you had on Romans. Uh, I went through it, worked through it devotionally, and appreciated it uh, very much. So um, even if I don't agree with you on every single jot and tittle of the commentary, as today's episode might might show, um, just well done, though. And I appreciate the the hard work that you put into that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Trevin. Thank you for that compliment. And and who knows, maybe this uh, interview may be a, a big moment in your own personal <laughs> sanctification and growth. It, it could Let's be. Let's see what happens. Keep an open mind, my friend. Keep an open mind. <laughs> okay, so we could spend hours on this topic. There is so much to cover in Romans chapter 7, and there are different nuances to each interpretation, so uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, I, I, will, I do want to recommend a book, Perspectives on Our Struggle with Sin, Three Views of Romans yes. 7. Very good. good book. Stephen Chester, Grant Osborne, Mark Seifred, Chad Brand is the editor. Uh, I worked through this a couple of weeks ago and just found it to be a helpful resource. But even even there, you've got these different nuances. So we're gonna we are gonna shrink this down to two main questions. Uh, spend a little time on the first question and then a lot of time on the second question. First question is this: When Paul suddenly shifts from speaking in the third person to the first person, um, he starts using the word "I." Who is yep. he talking about? Himself before his conversion? Adam? Israel? or anyone under the law. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. The second question, then we'll spend the most time, is Paul describing the inner turmoil of someone before conversion, or is he describing the spiritual struggle we face after conversion, or possibly is he describing the experience of both regenerate and unregenerate people apart from the Spirit of God? Those are, those are the, that's the, the options for the second question. All right, so, so let me read it uh, in the ACSB. Trevin, we'll split it up since it's a, kind of a long passage, okay. and then uh, we'll get started. So um, we are in Romans 7, uh, starting in verse 13. Therefore, did, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commitment through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am made out of flesh, sold into sin's power. So Paul goes on, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discovered this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. 
for in my inner self i joyfully agree with god's law but i see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body what a wretched man i am who will deliver me from this dying body i thank god through jesus christ our lord so then with my mind i myself am a slave to the law of god but with my flesh to the law of sin and a little plug to our sponsor the hcsb mike told us off air that it is a very popular translation in australia and i think he also said it was his favorite translation ever is that right mike I think half right. I, I do like the translation, but it, it actually is very popular in Sydney amongst um, Anglican evangelicals and Presbyterians. Uh, for, the, for the Reform crowd in Sydney, it's actually the uh, the Holman Christian Bibles probably uh, more popular than uh, than others like the ESV or NIV, wow. which is a, interesting. A, a very interesting a very interesting thing. Well, it's the best translation out there, so it makes sense <laughs> that they would love it. So. Yeah, well, actually, and and my boss Brian Rosn is on the editorial yeah, board for uh, for some of the things they're doing. So uh, they do have a good editorial board. They got some good people on there. So yeah, it is great. Yeah. Okay. So question number one, we want to spend just a little bit of time here first. Who is Paul talking about? We've got several options. The first is yep. that he he's when he starts talking to using the the I word, he's talking about himself. He's speaking autobiographically. Um, John Stott yep. had this view. He said what he writes seems too realistic and vivid to be either purely rhetorical device or the impersonation of someone else. Uh, then you've got, maybe he's talking about every man. He's using the I, but he's describing the struggle of every person with sin. Uh, some people believe he's talking about Adam. Uh, this is a has a long history in church history uh, that he's yep. depicting the Genesis story regarding Adam's fall into sin. I was alive, formerly without law. I died. Fits the connection between uh, here and then you think to Romans 5. Um, you've also got his, maybe he's speaking of Israel, describing Israel wrestling with the law and the sin. So he's describing the dilemma of all humanity uh, via this situation of Israel under the Mosaic ordinances. So you've got Chrysostom believed this, Cyril of Alexandria had this view. And then the fifth view is that he's describing himself as a Christian, uh, his own conflict as a believer, the battle between the spirit, you know, his desire to do good and obey the law and the desire uh, and then his flesh, his inability. That's Augustine later on in his life, Luther, Calvin, Bart, Cranfield, whatnot. So, uh, Dr. Bird, out of those five, what what, do you, what options do you think have the most promise? Okay, the most promise. The first thing I'll say, Trevin, is I do not think this text uh, is talking about a Christian. When Paul says I, I don't think he means I as a current follower of Jesus. And there's a number of reasons why I believe that. First of all, if we back up a bit from uh, 7, uh, 7 to 25, if you look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7, I think this is a table of contents for what is about to come. Chapter 7, verse 5, uh, I think that is basically a summary of verses 7 to 25, and then 7, 6 is a summary of chapter 8, or at least the first half of chapter 8. I think, so I think way, Tom Schreiner has that view too. Is that right? Yeah, and, yeah. and, and God bless Tom. He, I think he's exactly right mm -hmm. on that. So th that's, that's how I, I see the setup. But the other thing that makes me think this is not a Christian is that Paul says things about, well, the, the I says things that a Christian should not be able to say. For example, he says, I am a slave to sin. Well, if you go back to chapter 6, 
uh, Paul says that those who have union with Christ, who have gone into the waters of baptism with him, are no longer slaves. They're no longer slaves to sin. And the other thing, if the eye of, of chapter 7 is a Christian, then I'm, I'm flabbergasted, flabbergasted. You know, where is the Holy Spirit? Because the Spirit is a big part of Christian ethics and the Christian life. It's nowhere in chapter 7, but it's all over the place in chapter 8. So the, the first thing I would, I, would, I would say is look at the, the table of contents we have for the next two chapters in 7.5 and 7.6. I don't think the guy is a Christian. But that then comes down to the issue, who is the guy? If it's not Paul is a Christian or a Christian, who is it? And this is where I think it is very complex because I think it is deliberately open. We're not meant to identify the I with any one particular character. I think we can hear various echoes, various um, connections with all sorts of characters. I mean, if you read Genesis 3, you definitely could be reminded of Adam when you come across this. If you read some of the Psalms, particularly the penitential Psalms, again, that could make you think of a Jew or, or even Israel under the law. Uh, but, but probably in the immediate setting of how the Romans would have received it. Remember, Paul's writing predominantly to, to Gentile Christians who were formerly uh, God-fearers or proselytes. I think what Paul is trying to do is to remind them how they, how they felt or what they experienced in their first encounter with the law. How they, how they came to believe this is a way of relating to God. This was a way of being part of the Jewish community. This was a way of security. And yet all it did when they encountered the law was not give them assurance that they, that they, they belonged to God's people and they were acceptable to God. Rather, it created anxiety with them in them. And, 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 and they, they had a sense of insecurity of where they stood before God. So the law rather Rather than, than making them feel more assured that, mm. that, that by becoming Jewish, by becoming Torah observant, they were right with God, it actually cr created more anxiety over the issue. And if they can't see that now, then maybe they can see that retrospectively through the lens of faith. They could see the struggle they had when they first connected the law. But I think the I is most likely a composite character because it's capable of relating to a number of different, different figures, biblical and real. And, and that's part of ancient rhetoric. You have a thing called a speech in character where you kind of impersonate someone. And Paul takes on this composite personality that's fairly open and can relate, can relate to numerous people who, have, for the first time, have come to the law and then in hindsight can see the struggle they had with it. Well, I know I know we've got to go to the to the second question we've already you've already touched on it there is Paul describing the experience of a Christian I like the I like the fact that you you see that it that there can there can be more openness to exactly who he's referring to we don't have to say is it just Paul or is it just Israel or is it just Paul or you know the proselytes or is you, you know, that, or that, that, Adam yeah or Adam that there is that ability for there to be resonance and so I yeah. I don't agree that it's not speaking Christian experience, but I do agree with you that saying it's Paul doesn't necessarily narrow us to 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 th that he wouldn't have this bigger these bigger views in mind. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. And we have to distinguish between what's called an open and a closed text. A closed text is where the author is leading you into such a way that it's very clear the connection he wants you to make. But some texts can be more open, and they do invite you, based on your own prior experiences, uh, what you understand of the biblical canon, to make one or more connections uh, with with some sort of uh, text and its potential resonances or meaning. So um, when we talk about the second question, then, of, of whether or not he's regenerate or unregenerate, um, somebody like uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, actually, the point is not whether or not this person is regenerate or unregenerate. The real question is, or the real point is that he's basically offering this dramatic warning um, that when we seek sanctification through the law, that doesn't work. Apart from the Spirit, it doesn't work. But, you know, you go into chapter 8, and he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you try to seek the law without the Spirit, you can't have it. But just know that there is no condemnation in Christ if you believe in him. So where do you fall into that of of Lloyd-Jones saying it's not really the point of whether or not it's regenerate or unregenerate, but rather it's a bigger uh, illustrative point? I think that is a question you would come up with if you are immersed in English Puritan literature. <laughs> <laughs> and seriously, I mean, if, if that is your experience, if, if if the whole thing is about law and gospel, is that if that's the the question that's on your mind, then you will read it through that lens. Hmm. Um, I'm sure that was very meaningful for you know people who come from that uh, theological uh, stable, but I just don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Well, uh, t- I think let me let me finish. I think Paul's main point in Romans seven is actually a defense of the law. I mean, Paul is saying, you know, that the question that Paul's leading up to, if the law is not how you get saved, if it doesn't define and mark out God's people, then what was the point of giving it? Is the law a bad thing? So Paul is, in fact, giving a, a defense, an apologetic hmm. for the law by showing its limited place in redemptive history. Uh, the, the, the law can show you what sin is, but it cannot take you to redemption, but it was never designed to. So that would be my brief answer to that sort of Lloyd-Jones response. Um, you, you've done a really good job of presenting the the, the perspective um, of this being an, an unregenerate person. I, I want to um, give, and in fact, I, I, I want to give the other side, because there are a lot of, and, and just for our listeners to understand, Romans 7 is Im- very complex, there's no, of course, not all of these these different interpretations are right or wrong, but the the interpretations we're discussing today are not heretical. Um, there, lots of good Bible believing evangelicals come to differences of opinion on this and have throughout church history. So, just to sort of clear that to say, we we can have these honest disagreements as we wrestle with this. Um, I, yeah. You you definitely pointed to, to in my mind what is the the strongest piece of evidence from this text for the position that this person is unregenerate when when you talked about how Paul describes himself as being sold under sin uh, imprisoned by the law and sin the, both of those do seem to run up against what like you said Romans 6:18 and 22 that where the believers set free from sin or Romans 8:2 where the the believers set free from the law of of yeah. sin and death so i if there's any part of this passage where you say this doesn't make sense of a of an unbeliever, um, I, I mean, of a believer. I think that you, you've you've given the strongest the strongest point there. Now, where I would push back and Great. say, 
I would say, though, there, there are also some part, parts in this text where it doesn't quite make sense to, to speak of a, an unbeliever in a certain way. Um, it, this, this person is described as delighting in God's law, verse 22, trying to obey yeah. God's law, verses 15 through 20, serving it, verse 25. Um, the description of the unbelief, if this is an unbeliever, the description here seems very different than the person under God's wrath from 118, you know, all the way to for all have sinned for chapter uh, uh, Romans three twenty three. You You've got someone here who seeks after God, who wants to submit to God's law. And Paul, when he speaks of his pre-conversion, uh, he, he seems to, uh, he sees himself as blameless. He, he doesn't portray himself as conflicted. And this Christian, this person here, if, if you're going to take the view that it's a Christian has an inner self, verse 22, which we, and, and, and also the will wants the, the will of this person wants to do good. And he calls himself a slave, uh, to God's law. So, Put all of those together, plus just the the experience of Christians feeling like they are they still are part of a struggle. Um, and I I I lean the other way. I think that Paul, when he shifts to the present tense, is describing yep. current Christian experience, the struggle of of the Christian. Uh, so just to just to throw this out there, Doctor Bird, um, it yep. was Augustine who switched his view. He went from the early view of saying this was pre-conversion and then the later, wiser, more mature <laughs> Augustine suddenly yeah. realized later that this is talking about Christian experience. So um, I, I wanted to put out that that's the best case I can offer for why I think this is actually talking about Christian experience. But go ahead and, and push back and convince our listeners and maybe even Brandon here. Yeah. Why, why okay. I'm wrong. Okay. Why I'm party. Brevin, <laughs> I want you to know, man. I have the highest opinion of you, and you're on my, oh, you're on my no. favorite Sutton Baptist, but I'll be honest with you, what you've just said is about as convincing as Bill Clinton taking a vow of chastity. <laughs> oh, no. You know, I knew it was going to be bad when you started buttering okay. me up. <laughs> okay, first of, all, first of all, let's start with Augustine. Now I love my Augustine. I like to get my Augustine on. But the reason why, <laughs> the reason why he changed his mind is because he needed the utility in his argument with Pelagius. He Ooh. wanted to de he wanted to deprive Pelagius of the ability to say that an unregenerate person delights in the law. So he changed his mind on that. So it was talking about a Christian rather than an unbeliever because he didn't want Pelagius using it against him in their views of you know um, salvation. Is it just by following Christ's example that kind of a thing? Um, the other thing you've got to remember is, oh, mate, don't, don't, I mean, write this down, son, write this down. Don't ever, <laughs> don't ever base your argument on the present tense of the Greek. Uh, that's, that's not a good way to go. I don't well, well I, I wasn't basing my whole argument on that. I was just saying no, that's, no, no. that's one, that's one little piece. And the, I mean, I had a lot of views that I just presented there that I would want to, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, a lot of reasons. Don't use don't use the the uh, present tense to say Paul is therefore talking about a present experience. That's not how the present tense works. The idea of having an inner self that's very common to ancient psychology. The kind of you know uh, the conscience, the inward me. Uh, you can find that anywhere. And in terms of delighting in the law, well, mate, let me ask you this: uh, in the Jewish synagogues that Paul attended, were there uh, Jews who did not believe in Jesus? 
Did they delight in the law? Did they bind themselves to the law? Did they believe the law was the will of God? And did they strive and, 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 and want to obey it? I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, don't assume that Christians are the only ones who can or will try to delight in the law. Uh, what, what, where I think you, you might be a little bit closer is that there is an element of retrospection going on. And I do think the struggle that Paul is describing is being told retrospectively from the point of faith. I don't think Paul went around with a guilt-stricken conscience looking for a merciful God. Hmm. If you read Philippians 3, he thought he was righteous. He thought he was blameless. He thought he was zealous. He was pleasing God. He, he, he was exceeding in the religion of his ancestors and his teachers. He thought he was pretty good. But when he comes to Christ, it's in hindsight. He can see the struggle he had when he encountered the law and something he thinks that the God-fearers in Rome, maybe they can identify too. What I, I think there is an element of faith in Romans 7 because it shows us what Doug Campbell calls the horrifying view backwards. Hmm. You know, imagine, imagine you've been up in Colorado and you've gone through a long trail and, and you get to the end of the trail and someone said, what way did you go? You said, I, I just came across that path there. And they say, dude, you just traveled over a frozen lake and it's early spring. It's like, oh, man, it's, it's like it's that horrifying view backwards where you see where you've come from and how dangerous and perilous you were. And uh, if, if I can just add one final thing on this. I think this does frame the way we think about salvation. I think if you think of Romans 7 as the normal Christian experience, you can end up with a real kind of, you know, worm theology. Like I'm just a pathetic worm. Nothing I'm saved, but nothing's really changed. One question I ask my students, how would you better describe yourself as a sinner saved by grace or as a saint who sometimes sins? So mm. let me ask you guys, how would you answer that question? Are you a sinner saved by grace or a saint who sometimes sins? I I, I have written on on this and am with the second. So I I do not think this is the normal Christian experience that the entirety of life is this way. I think that this is the occasional feeling of the Christian because as as I, I like this this quote from Cranfield. The farther men advance, advance in the Christian life and the more mature their discipleship, the clearer becomes their perception of the heights to which God calls them, the more painfully sharp their consciousness of the distance between what they ought and want to be and what they are. So there's this, this sense of, I, I, I agree with you, I, I, I do not agree with the worm theology that we are yes. always simply sinners who are saved by grace and we're no longer uh, the 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 presence of the spirit would would move us in the, in the direction yeah. that you're saying but at the same yeah. time I so I wouldn't want to say this is the normal christian experience at all times I would simply say that this is this is a an occasional struggle that the christian feels and it it's yeah. occasional but not not necessarily normal but I I want Brandon yeah. to to get, to get in here I don't know what his view is on this. No, all I have to say is that I like being out of the way and watch you go through what I went through the last year, <laughs> sending papers to Michael Bird every couple of months. So, all right. So we're, we're running pretty close on time here. This has been a great discussion. And obviously, if you're listening, you know that there's a lot more here. So it's good just to hear you guys kind of go back and forth a little bit on it. But OK, so regardless of what view you take, and maybe this is kind of a loaded question, but 
Regardless well, of what you didn't view, answer his question, though. What question? Well, he asked you about the sinner saved by grace or the saint who sometimes sins. Depends on what side of the bed I wake up in the morning. <laughs> okay. Depends on if I read the Bible that morning or not. I mean, both are somewhat true, but the, yeah. what's the foundational identity yeah, the is saint, the question the latter, he's getting sure. at. Yes, that's, that's yeah. the key. Um, so if we're preaching or teaching this, right, um, let's just yeah. say what's a very general um, kind of baseline point. I mean, I lean toward on Romans 7 saying, at the end of the day, the point of this, if nothing else, is to say that apart from God's grace, you have no chance and no shot of being saved. But what more can we say I, besides that? Yeah, I, I think I think that is a good point to start. But one of the things you know, I would want to I would want to finish up on is, you know, the idea if you look back in your own personal biography, you know, particularly before you came to Christ or, or other struggles you've had in life. You, 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 can, you can see that there was a dissatisfaction and an inability, and it's only through the lens of faith you appreciate that what God has done for you, mm-hmm. because you can now you can now shout for joy. You can say, "Booyah! The wretched man, me, has been saved." <laughs> so I think I think it leads to a sense of unrestrained rejoicing, mm-hmm. and you should you should never get over the fact that God has saved a rebel like you. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what things I think for if Paul never got over the majesty, the depth the of God's grace and goodness towards him in Christ when he did not deserve it. For, uh, so that's like, that's like where I'd like to end up. Yeah, for for me preaching this text um I uh, I don't know that I would be completely even if having a different interpretation I don't know we'd be in a completely different place but when when speaking of um, struggle, since I think this is a text that's talking about um, occasional struggle in the Christian life. I, I like the way that I've, I've heard Tim Keller preach on this before, where you have Paul earlier on in the chapter speaking of himself before, or speaking of, of the, the unconverted person. Uh, there's the struggle you cannot win before salvation, followed by the struggle you cannot lose, which is after salvation, meaning that that this this um sense that we are not all that we are called to be this cry of despair that we have to the final resurrection of our bodies as augustine would would point out is ultimately leading us forward and where we still wind up with uh the author here um seeing ourselves in a terrible state apart from the the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ but then wanting to give all gratitude and and praise and praise to him all right well i think that is a good point to end uh Dr. Bird, thank you so much for jumping on with us and for putting up with us two Southern Baptists. Thank you, guys. I have a wonderful time. I enjoy listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you, thanks sir. so much. And thanks, Trevor, for jumping on and coasting with me. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Word Matters is presented by the Holman Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages but clear for today's readers. Find out more at hcsb.org.